Okay. We uh, talked about the five points of Calvinism or Reformed theology last week as an overview of our verse-by-verse study today. Let's read our text from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11, verses 12. And uh, if you just hang with me, we're going to hit uh, some portions of chapter 3 and a couple verses in chapter 2. And I'm going to add some emphasis to some things here. And, uh, and just work with me, and, and I think your eyes will open to what is being said here. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, our greatest scholars on earth today, most of them are Calvinists, and they say what, what they say, I'm about to say, they don't see it this way. But you test it out, and you find out what you think. Give this a chance. See what the Calvinists say, and go from there. So let's read our text. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure of which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now I add emphasis to that last line to give you a hint. It's a precursor hint. Hint, 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 a question. Of the people being talked to at that time in that day, what people first trusted in Christ? Of the church of Jesus and the apostles at that time, what people first trusted in Christ? That's a hint to the solution of what we're going to get to. So the connection between Calvinism and the passages we just read Calvinists insist that Ephesians 1 through 12 clearly establish this idea that God is so much a God of sovereignty that right here in the text, we see that he, before the foundation of the world, unconditionally predestined his elect, past, present, future, Throughout the world, Calvinism says, God predestined his elect to salvation, uh, meaning those who would be his after this life from the foundation of the world. And after doing so, he set in motion from the foundation of the world those who would be his without any. We talked about all the qualifiers to this and then tacitly those who would not meaning the fact that he chose those who would be his, he also elected the rest 
to not be his, and therefore, remember this, burn forever in hell, uh, a literal hell, okay? So admittedly, the text that I just read outside of context, just reading those passages could readily be interpreted to mean this. I mean, if you just read the passage, you say, we means me, means that's it, it's done, it's set. See, there it is right there, right? And if this is the implication, then the sad fact remains that God, who is love and goodness and kindness, he has also, from the beginning of the world, before the beginning of the world, elected most to actually, literally, die and suffer in hell. Remember, it is God in Calvinism who elects somebody to be his. There's nothing they've done. And it is God in Calvinism who discards the rest by not electing them, by not. And therefore, they automatically go to a place of eternal suffering. So is this a fair, contextually honest interpretation of Ephesians uh, 4 through 12? It's obvious that Ephesians 1 puts a considerable amount of emphasis on God's will. His, in, in the Greek, there is his Bulamahi will and his Theolema will. These are two different types of will God has. There are a lot of purposed will, desired will that is going on here in uh, Ephesians 1. Our question is to ask, what are God's desires and how does he go about bringing them forth? That's one sub-question that we have. Now, verse 5 says in chapter 1, if you're reading along, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention, eudokia, of his will, thelema, his intentions and his will. Verse 9 says, he made known to us the mystery of his will, thelema, according to his kind intention, eudokia, which he purposed uh, uh, prothithemi in him. All of those words, they're big words about desires, will, and um, what God wants. And then in verse 11 of the same chapter, it says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things. That's a big line in, in Reformed theology. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. Again, referring to the sovereignty of God. So this all sounds like Reformed theology, admittedly. If you just read it, it that's what it sounds like. Um, in this last verse that I just read, we find those three words, prothesis, bula mamahi, and thelema, words which are all bound together that speak to his will, his purpose. All right. I cannot agree that his purposes, God's purposes, are not fulfilled. I believe that his will is fulfilled and his purposes are accomplished. How he goes about doing that is where I differ with our Reformed brothers and sisters. Uh, the question remains, 
is whether his will and purposes described here in Ephesians are directed at every individual human being on the face of the earth that he has elected, as the reformers would suggest, or is Paul talking about something else? I wanna propose to you this morning, he's talking about something else. And that's what I wanna prove to you. The last verse I just read says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. And in the face of this verse, determinists, determinists is another word for Calvinists. It's another word for those who believe that God determines what everyone will do and be without free will at all. They are determinists. Calvinist is synonymous with determinism. Determinists um, speak of God's eternal decrees as all-inclusive, that when he says something, it means everybody. And so all means all in that sense here. All things is, and it appears that's what Paul is saying when you just read it without context. But those who take this in an absolute sense have ignored the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians is Paul addressing something different. And if you skip that, if you just read chapter one and you don't include what he's talking about in chapter two and chapter three and what he mentions in chapter five, you can easily say chapter one proves it. But if you look at what he is really trying to get to through the whole epistle, you can see that what Paul is talking about in this first chapter is not an all-inclusive predestination of individuals to salvation, but is something else. Again, so those who take this as an absolute sense, chapter one, have ignored the context and purpose of the book of Ephesians as a whole. And, uh, and so they make the assumptions that they make. We're going to get to those uh, things that Paul's uh, mentioning now. So I would strongly suggest that when Paul writes all things in that verse in the first chapter, chapter 11, the Greek word is panta. And in context of other scripture, panta does not always mean everything. Panta can mean all things within a scope. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of where context proves usage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse six, we read, and there are diversities of operations but is the same God which works all in all. All in all there, panta. And these are the same Greek verbs here that is used that Paul uses in chapter one of Ephesians. Panta, all in all. But context there teaches us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul is talking about God uh, works things all in all, it is talking about spiritual gifts. And so that all in all there is relative to he works all in all within the realm of gifting spiritually, all right? You can't just take that line and assign it to everything, which is a mistake. So the context of chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 12 clearly limits all things to spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 of that chapter says, speaking of spiritual gifts, but one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. 
So what I'm trying to prove to you is that the phrasing in Greek, all things, can be used in other places in scripture to not mean everything, but to mean specifically what is being talked about. That's the first principle. In a similar way, the context of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 does not allow us to think of all things in an absolutely inclusive, universal sense relating to every person being elected and predestined, even though it says we and us and we and us and we and us dozens of times there, but it's relative to God's specific focus of what the book of Ephesians is talking about. So what is the focus that Paul is speaking about in Ephesians? Let's begin by asking what Paul means when he writes at verse 9. Ready? Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. What is this mystery of his will? We're talking about God performing his will. And now Paul, inter uh, uh, Paul introduces us the mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. So there's some kind of mystery that is being talked about here automatically in the first chapter of God's will. And, and is it the mystery that he elects some from the foundation? Is that it? Is it the mystery that he wants the rest to burn forever? Is that the mystery? Let's ask ourselves, what is the mystery Paul mentions here in this very first chapter? Go to chapter three with me. Here in Ephesians, Paul marvels that he, in particular, was given the privilege of knowing this mystery. There he writes that, quote, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before you in brief. So by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into mystery of Christ. That's, that's verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. He says, by revelation, it was made known to me the mystery. So in chapter one, he mentions this mystery. In chapter three, he said, the mystery was made known to me. To me, he exclaims in verse eight and nine of chapter three, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. So in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, To me, I was given this mystery to preach this grace given to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what he's talking about when he speaks of a mystery. Then in chapter 3 at verse 6, Paul specifically identifies the mystery in no uncertain terms. And he tells his readers the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So in explaining what the mystery is that he mentions in chapter 1 and refers to in chapter 3, he tells us in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the Gentiles, and he uses the word fellow, fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers. This is a mystery to Paul. This is being revealed, and he is telling us about it in the book of Ephesians, that suddenly the Gentiles are joint members 
in this one body with Jews. This is the mystery. This is unbelievable. This great mystery, he later adds, listen to verse 5, which is known in generations, which, excuse me, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So no one knew this, how this was going to work or what it was going to look like. But here Paul says in verse 5, chapter 3, it has been a mystery before, but now it's been revealed to his apostles first and then those who have the prophetic gift. Remember this, that here in chapter 3, Paul explains that the mystery that he mentions in the first chapter of verse 9 is this gospel going to Gentiles. Remember this, I'm going to say it again, that the mystery is that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. We're going to get back to how important that is when we read chapter uh, 1, verses 4 through 12. So reading this, it seems that the Apostle Paul was appointed to be the apostle, to give the Gentiles, and this overwhelmed him, okay? Now, nobody on earth was more exclusive in Jews being the chosen ones of God the holy ones of Israel than Paul. He was so determined in this that he killed Christians who were trying to introduce another way. He was so determined on this exclusiveness, right? And that's why he went around putting Christians to death. It stands to reason that no one would be more amazed at the fact of what God was doing in bringing in the heathens and the pagans and the Gentiles into this body of chosen ones than Paul. So in, in chapter 3, he's amazed at this mystery that he mentions in chapter 1. That's why Ephesians 3, 6, 7, Paul says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body? You gotta be kidding. We wouldn't even eat with them before. And partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Remember the Gentiles weren't partakers prior to uh, Peter going to uh, uh, Cornelius' family. It was just a Jewish religion. It was to the Jews only. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The apostles were sent forth to Israel only. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Only to these people. And suddenly now, Paul is mentioning that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ. This mystery has been hidden from the foundation of the world. It blows my mind, he's saying. Whereof, he says in verse 7, I was made a minister of this mystery according to the gift of God in me who gave me the effectual working of this power. Prior to this, in chapter 2, Paul will comment on the fact that Jesus broke down the barrier that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the courts of the temple. There was a barrier that kept them separate. And thus he made the two groups one new man, reconciling them both in one body to God, through the cross. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. So we see in chapter 2, he's talking about this thing where God is bringing together Gentiles and Jews. Even his reference, listen to this, to marriage in chapter 5 of Ephesians, 
where the two shall become one flesh uh, is another subtle reminder of this mystery. Paul says, this is a mystery to me there. The two becoming one flesh. He uses uh, the couple in that instance in chapter five of the two becoming one flesh, which is the mystery that he can't understand in marriage. And he can't really get, get it, he seems, in chapters one, two, and three of this epistle that it's such a great thing. Two groups, foremost, first and foremost Jews, and then Gentiles added later becoming one body. Holy cow, that is a mystery that's being revealed. Now let me bring this all together. This is the same mystery that Paul introduces in the first chapter. Keeping this in mind, Paul is telling us, yes, God certainly works all things after the counsel of his will. But what specific counsel of his will does Paul have in mind when he says that? The plan to unite the Jews and the Gentiles into one body. Here is context of the book of Ephesians. This is what he's talking about in bringing together the purpose of his will, all things into the purpose of his will. Uh, Now listen, stay with me. This specific purpose is seen in the verses that immediately follow verse 11 in chapter one. As Paul says, to the end that we, we who? To the end that we, we who? we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. To the end that we, Paul is talking about a we group, all the way in verses 1 through 12, he's talking about a we group. We, us, we, us, we, us. God has in we and us, we and us, we and us. All the way down to verse 12, to the end that he ends with we, who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Again, I ask rhetorically, who was the first to hope in Christ of the two groups that would be made one? Who was the first to hope in Christ of the two groups that would be made one when the mystery was revealed? The Jews. That's who. They were the first to hope in Christ and the Gentile nations were the ones to come along later and join with the first to make one church or one bride, or one body. He uses all three terms. This is the great mystery, and the predestination spoken of here by Paul is speaking directly and only to the Jews, the house of Israel, whom God predestined to do what they would do for the salvation, reconciliation, and unity of the world into one body. That is what Paul is talking about. So now read verses 4 through 11 with me and discover how Paul distinguishes uh, between the Jews who first had hope in Christ and the Gentiles through the terms we and us, which speak of the Jews who were predestined, and the terms you, which he uses later, which is very different from we and us. Stay with me, it's going to rock your world. So here in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul identifies himself with the Jews, whom he calls as having the first to hope in Christ. As in the previous verses, he dwells on God's purpose for the nation of the Jews, on how God chooses them, chose them, 
God says us, chose us because he was a Jew, before the foundation of the world, how he predestined them to the adoption of sons, how he offered them the gospel of grace first, which is concurrent with Romans 1, 16 and 2, 8 and 9. And in this, we realize that in context, all the references to predestination in Ephesians 1 are strictly speaking of the predestination of the nation of Israel by God to bring about the mystery. And it's not the predestination of everybody on earth willy-nilly picking and choosing some for hell, some for heaven, as our Calvinist brothers and sisters maintain. So, just listen to one more passage. Paul says in Romans 11, 1 through 12, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In Romans Paul points out that God foreknew his people, the nation of Israel. He clearly shows he's not talking about believers, Gentile believers there. He's talking about those who are Israelites of Abraham and the tribe, different tribes. And he says, those God foreknew. And that's Romans 11, 1 through 2. So again, from verses 1 through 12, Paul's main emphasis is on God's predestinational purposes on the nation of Israel who God refers collectively as the we's and the us's because he was part of them, all right? But then in the next verses, he will shift and I'll show you and he starts speaking, of, and you. So in verses three through 14, he says, we, us, we, us, me, a Jew, us, we, we. And then in verse uh, 13, he goes to, and you, non-Jews who are being brought into this one body and he describes them there. Okay, so read verses 1 through 12 again, keeping this perspective in mind, and I'm going to add some thoughts as we go. He begins with, Blessed be God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We're going to talk about that phrase at the end. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. That, in other words, here is where Paul explains the reason God has done all of this in and through the nation. That, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, meaning when everybody's going to come into this body, the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both of which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of glory who first trusted in Christ. The gospel was given to us first. 
Jesus came to his own first. We were the first who trusted in Christ. That is who he is speaking of in verses 4 through 12. I hope you're on fire with this because this is telling us contextually what is being said. Now read verse 13 with me where Paul deliberately shifts from talking about the we and the us, the house of Israel, which he was a part of, to another you or you group saying, in whom you also, in you also. So he's been talking about an us, we, the nation of Israel, tribe of Israel. And now he says, in whom also you trusted. A different group, completely different group. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do you notice something really particular there? That when it's talking about the nation of Israel in verses 4 through uh, uh, 12, it's all predestined. God predestined. He did this. He did this. He did this. But when it comes to speaking of those also who are not part, the Gentile world, that there's nothing about predestination there, that when it comes to the Gentile world, it's all about those who believe. Look what he says, in whom you also trusted, whom you trusted, not in whom you were predestined. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believe, after you believed, you received the Holy Spirit of promise. Not after you were predestined, after you believed. To the, to the Jews, it was a predestination that God used the, that group to his will to bring about everything, to bring about the two together. And then when he starts speaking of the Gentile world, it's all about people who hear and believe and trust. And then because of that, we're sealed up. Do you see that difference there in scripture? Completely overlooked by our Calvinist friends. Absolutely not even understood from what I can see. So clearly verse 13 shifts from the first group who first trusted in Christ, the Jews, and moves to in whom you, not us and we, but you Gentiles also trusted. In addition to those who first trusted in Christ, after, after, after you heard the word of truth. You didn't trust because you were predestined to trust. You heard the word of truth and you believed it. He says it right there. The gospel of your salvation, of your salvation, this gospel, in whom also after you believed, after you believed, not after you were predestined, he drops predestination here altogether when he talks about the second group. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's one of the best teachings we've had at campus because it clearly shows what Paul is saying here in his epistle. Contextually, instead of just reading the first verses, yeah, we are predestined. God is just this despot and that's how it works. Uh, this theme Paul continues to develop as I showed through chapters two and then chapters three, even mentioning in chapter five when he talks about the mystery of two becoming one in a marriage. He says, you know, this is a mystery to me. Note that Paul shifts to the Gentiles who God did not predestine and who were not included in the us, we group at verse 13 and that his description, I know I'm repeating this, is absent predestinational rhetoric. 
just mark verse 13 in your chapter as this shows we choose. There is free will. After you believed, you were given the Holy Spirit of promise. Not when you were predestined to be his as the Jews were. So from all this, we can safely say that when Paul says all things in Ephesians 1.11, he does not have a universal reference in mind, but a specific reference by to the nation of Israel. This is the contextual uh, view of Ephesians 4 through 12, which shuts down the Reformed doctrine. So that's the general overlay. Now let's go verse by verse through it and talk by it. Back uh, through verse 3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Again, the us there and the we's always talking about the nation of Israel. According as he has chosen us, the Jews, the nation of Israel, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be the nation of Israel, not as a whole, only true Israel, I might add, only true Israel, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And true Israel was. They were the ones who received Christ when he came, true Israel. The other ones weren't true Israel, all right? Uh, And by the way, when it says that... uh, Israel would be without blame before him in love. It doesn't mean that they had the love. It means that God loved them. And we get that from what the Old Testament says about true Israel and, 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 and the like. So when Paul is writing of those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy and without blame before him in love, he's speaking of those who were truly Israel, who truly had a love for God and a heart for God and followed God, not those who Jesus encountered, who he said were the children of Satan and, and their father was Satan and not, not uh, his father. Very different group, okay? So not all, simply put, not all who were of Abraham, not all who were of Isaac and Jacob were Israel, but Paul speaks about those who were truly of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, now these, that group was elected and chosen to be gods. And I'm going to read several passages just to get them in the books so that we can see that what Paul says in the first chapter is consistent with the Tanakh or the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, Moses writes, For you are a holy people to your Lord, your God. Your Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, it wasn't because of your number or strength that he chose you. He chose you and foreordained you, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of the, with his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. So in, in Deuteronomy 14, 2, speaking of the Jews, for you are a holy people to your Lord, your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be his people as a possession out of all the peoples on the earth at that time. In 2 Samuel 7, 30, uh, 23 through 24, and what nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you, an awesome thing for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and from gods. For you have established yourself, your people Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. 
These passages are all speaking of that predestination of God saying, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to call out a people. I'm going to make them mine. They are predestined before the foundation of the world. We're going to talk about that means before we wrap it up, the foundation of the world. I am going to elect you to be my people. And that is certainly true. And that is what Paul is talking about there in verses three through, uh, four through uh, 12 in Ephesians. In 1 Kings 8, 20, uh, 53, for you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance. He has done this. As you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out forth from Egypt, uh, O Lord, your God. We have three references to when they were brought out of Egypt, out of bondage, when this is happening. Remember that when we talk about the foundation of the world in just a second. First Kings 10, 9. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Uh, Psalms, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. The Lord has chosen. You can put elected there. You can put predestined there. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. Okay? Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, but now says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Okay, and he goes on to say, when you walk through this and you walk through that, I am the Lord, your God. I have brought you out of Egypt. Jeremiah 31, one through four, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Amos three, one through two, hear the word of the Lord, which is spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family, which he brought you out from the land of Egypt. That's the sixth time Egypt is mentioned in conjunction with God calling them out and to be his people and predestining him, them. Remember that. We're going to get to that point. You only have I chosen among the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities, God says there. So here in Ephesians, Paul is speaking of the elect of the house of Israel, whom God certainly chose, elected, predestined to do what they would do as he prepares to speak of this great mystery now of God having done that through them, bringing the nation of Israel in and creating one body, which is the mystery, right? That's why in Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 13, we read the following. Finding fault with them, that means the former nation. He, God, says, behold, Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will elect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Seventh reference to Egypt of when God elected them as his people and called them forth. For they did not continue in my covenant, God says. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. That means true Israel, who are truly his, who truly love him. That's you too. That's you too. This is the covenant that I will make with true Israel. Those of the Jews and those of the Gentiles of one body who truly love me. They are truly Israel. 
This is the covenant I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them in their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay? So again, speaking of God, Paul writes at verse four in Ephesians chapter one, according as he has chosen us, the Jews, the nation of Israel, as supported by the Old Testament passages we just considered, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blame before him in love. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing it? Now, because of the word us, many reformed teachers suggest that he's obviously referring to all individuals that have been chosen and elected and predestined. Paul is obviously including himself in the mix because he was pulled from the Jews as a believer, and that's what they say. I would suggest that this is faulty by the fact that Paul will, at verse 13, shift to a you and ye. He will shift to a you then, right? So if it was talking initially at verse 4 through 12 about everybody, he would never shift to another group. He would just continue to talk about everybody. But he shifts. The general meaning here is also that God has laid out things according to a plan, and it always says in him. It's his plan. Within God, there is this plan is the election that is taking place, is the choosing, is the appointing. It's within God that it's taking place. We don't have to necessarily jump that it's external and that it comes upon and is forced the way people will read that. It's something that he elected and planned and, and foresaw to do as a means to reconcile the world to himself through true Israel. So has chosen is exalexato, and it means to lay out together, to choose out, to elect. And the idea of making a choice or selection of different objects is inferred in that Greek word. There is a choice of nations. I am choosing this nation and that nation out of all the other choices, is what he says. And God refers to that several times in the passages I read to you from the Old Testament. I, out of all the peoples, I have selected you within me, okay? Very different picture than I have predestined you to act this way, which is the way it's taught by our Calvinist friends. When you are electing or selecting or choosing out of a group, you're making a choice. That's what it is. And in the... Uh, so it would be like, because it was Israel, he elected them to do what he was going to do. He made the choice to have Israel do that. But it's like if you were a director of a play and you said, I have chosen out of all the <coughs> participants, Susie, to be the lead. But in the end, Susie never came to practice. And so Jane became our lead. He made the choice, but still it does not mean a predestinational force upon, which is something you have to include when you read these. So the word is used also when Mary and Martha uh, are in the house and Mary chooses, Mary chooses to sit with Jesus and listen to him and Martha chooses to clean the house. It's the same verb in the Greek. And Jesus says, you know, Mary has chosen the good part. There is a will there. There is an ability to choose there. So it's not just this despotic force that's implied through Calvinistic teachings. We also read in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen, he has selected, 
the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, right? And so it doesn't mean he has caused them to be foolish. It just means he's looked at the foolish and allowed them to confound the wise in their thinking. Because there is a factor of God electing or choosing from among things, from the foundation of the world, albeit the selection was all within him and not externally. Remember, it's all within him. I see this in merely saying that God planned and it does not have a reference to pre-existent election as some people might try to suggest. It's a pre-existent pre to our existent election, but it's not that we were there and there was an election that took place. And I'm just covering that because of our audience. The fact that Paul adds that God did this choosing in him or in himself makes this even more apparent. And this helps us to understand passages like Acts 13, 17, uh, where uh, God, it says, the God, of this, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. He selected, he planned within him the fathers. Does God choose or elect some individuals today from the foundation of the world? And we are always taught that that means before this world had one thing planned on it, this is when all this was going on. Isn't that the way you've always been taught about it? That's how I've always been taught about it and always thought about it that way. And that may be the way, it sounds like it's the way, but I'm gonna bring you uh, to another thought that uh, seems to be the case here when we read from before the foundation of the world. But because he elected the nation and because he elects some individuals does not mean all of his children that are saved have been predestined to this state by him outside the confines of free will. That is the biggest illogical leap when we look at context of Ephesians that I can believe. I mean, it just does not, it's not fair. It's not fair when we look at the us and we and then the shift to uh, you. So that's the fatal leap in my estimation of Calvinism. Okay. So the whole point is that God certainly, in relation to the nation of Israel, from before the foundation of the world, whichever way you want to interpret that, made a distinction between them and the rest of the world cultures of people at that time. That we have to say is true. It's in the Old Testament. It's supported here in Ephesians. It's supported other places too as well, Romans. I think it's safe to say that he made other distinctions as well with other people. That's his prerogative. He, he, he went to the baseball Little League draft and he chose Charlie to be, he drafted Charlie because he wanted Charlie to be his pitcher. But I still don't believe that Charlie had to be his pitcher. If Charlie uh, decided to not show up to practice, then Billy became the pitcher and God uh, would work with that. And that is how I bridge between the idea of God wanting and planning and choosing and other things happening. It's, called, it's, a source, it's a sort of touch on open theism, but I'm not, not completely open theistic. So if we can accept that God gave Barbara Streisand great pipes, I mean, we get our gifts from God, she's got the great voice, and he didn't give those pipes to others, then we know that he does bestow certain things on people, and maybe we can see it that way. Now, the fact that she chose and learned and grew up and used those pipes, I don't know how to bring that in except for free will. But anyways, we also note in the context of this that it's all done in Christ, that God did all this within him in Christ. And it's an important distinction. We're almost done. That's why Paul writes at verse four, God, according to, as he has chosen us, the Jews, 
the nation, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the pleasure of his goodwill, to the praise of his glory and grace, wherein he has made us acceptable in the beloved. What that's saying is God had elected members of the nation of Israel to receive Christ, to receive him. That would, that those are who Jesus was calling. My father knows who they are. The sheep know my voice. He is going out and calling them. He has elected them, predestined them, called them, planned for them, right? In Christ, for them to receive Christ. And because it was from before the foundation of the world, we know that it was not an afterthought. It was from before the beginning of a, of a period when God did this, all right? So here's the deal. If God had established and chosen the nation of Israel from before the creation of the world, then that's an irrefutable plan. It's not going to fail. The question remains, if God established things, elected things, chose certain things or people from the foundation of the world, is there free will? Can there be free will? Well, we know with relative to Gentiles there can because verse 13 of Ephesians 1 clearly tells us that's when we believe that we receive the Holy Spirit. And when we did this, I mean, when you, Gentiles, and when you, and you, and you. So we can see that the predestinational stuff doesn't apply to Gentiles. It applies solely to the nation of Israel. But I want to wrap up our time talking about this idea of from the foundation of the world. First, we know that from Jesus' mouth, some things have been kept hidden from the foundation of the world, is what it says. I suggest that one of the mysteries or secrets on how God would unite the nations and the nation of Israel and the Gentiles through his son is one of those mysteries. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 35, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophets saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which I have kept secret from the foundation of the world. Everyone I know, including myself until I studied this, believes that means before this world was spinning and everything was made, this was before, okay, planned out. And it's very easy to see and believe that. We also know that God from the foundation of the world prepared a kingdom. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, 34, about this kingdom, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Scripture suggests that prophets were put to death the prophets were put to death from the foundation of the world, okay? And uh, Luke eleven fifty has Jesus say, the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be, may be required of this generation. We know that God the Father loved his son from the foundation of the world as Jesus prays in John 17, 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, ready, <coughs> which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And then we have Paul saying here in Ephesians 1, 4, according as he has chosen us, the nation of Israel, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And that has caused our reformer friends to suggest that Everybody has been elected 
from before the foundation of the world, before the creation of earth and the heavens and the cosmos, everyone has been elected. God knew it. His sovereignty will happen done. That's how it's explained. The writer of Hebrews, two more passages, suggests that the whole plan that we're talking about was worked out from the foundation of the world, which we have believed to enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The works were finished, the writer of Hebrews says, from the foundation of the world. And then he adds in Hebrews 9, 26, last verse, and then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, talking about Christ and his suffering. For then he also has suffered since the foundation of the world, ready, but now in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26 talks about how now Christ at the end of the world has put away the uh, sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because of that passage and because of the fact that all of this is relative to the nation of Israel, go back with me now to the mention of Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. When I took you out of Egypt, I made you mine. I took you out of Egypt, I made you mine, I made you mine. Guess what happened when God pulled them out of Egypt, the nation that he elected? He established the law. He established the law with Moses on Sinai. And guess what happened then? He created the world. He created that universe. He created the nation of Israel's world. That's the foundation of the world. God has loved his son before when he creates the law for the nation of Israel who he elected. And everything, was hap everything happened prior to that in his mind of what he was going to do. It does not mean, in my opinion, the foundation of the material world that spins and we all live on. We can say that because the end of the world that's being talked about in Hebrews 9.26 happened when Jesus put away sin for all by his sacrifice. And we know in the Old Testament that when the Jews wrote, they talked about this first world, this age in which they lived which all began for them when? When Moses established the law and they took upon covenants and God gave them the Ten Commandments, that's when the world, the foundation of that world for the nation of Israel began. He pulled them out of bondage and he created them a people under the law. Because they were under the law, they were found sinful and from the foundation of the world, Christ was sacrificed. The works were finished at that time from the beginning in God. He knew what was going on there and he used the Jews and Jesus, their Messiah and the oracles to bring all this about. What? For what? For this world, for the mystery where God has now united the two into one body and those who are his are coming to him by the spirit and he writes his laws upon their hearts and minds. That is the substance of the context of what is being said here in Ephesians chapter one. We're gonna leave it off at that. I know it was meaty. It was a lot of stuff but it's really important stuff when it comes to understanding him in spirit and in truth. Questions, comments? Woo! No, we love her. I know. <laughs> so, I see... What's that? Oh, yeah. Sorry. So I see you as one of the foolish things that confounds the wise. There you go. That was great teaching and... Uh, 
I kept looking at your tattoo on your arm, that old world, that co old covenant that yeah. came into existence, you're saying, when the law of Moses was put in place when God called Israel out of yeah. Egypt yeah. and lasted until Christ came to be the last sacrifice. And then the new covenant, um, which is the spiritual realm of the gospel, then took over where everyone was accepted and that became the mystery that was revealed to the two the becoming one. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. It is beautiful. Paul, man, he's, he's tough if it's just a couple passages. You're like, you know, he's got to mean this, but boy, he was not a foolish one. Anybody else? All right, you guys. Thank you. Oh, Karen. So anyway, just really quick on your last Tuesday. That was dynamic. Awesome. awesome. It was wonderful. And then thank you. Uh, this before the foundation of the world thing is bothered me for a long time yeah so you just that totally rang true oh, good. but i have a question it's kind of a weighty question you know, and so so we got this world created we've got israel created we've got god's people created at that time and then but there were a lot of other nations running around so what happens to them i think what happens to them in my opinion karen is that through israel and all that they did they're bad and their badness as well as their goodness he accomplished his purposes in and through his son. They're the ones who put him to death. And in and through his son, he reconciled the whole world to himself, which is a passage. And so all those other nations were not, not loved by him, but he couldn't do anything with them in their sinful state and, and, and in the way they were. So he had to use some mode, the nation of Israel, to bring about his will, to get his son to do that thing. And that is when he had his victory. That's how I see it. Thank you. That's awesome. Because when I studied the Bible, I was surprised at how much Israel didn't follow God. Oh, yeah. All those covenant, covenants that God made, they were on one-sided. They were on his side. Yeah. They didn't hold up to, I mean, no. eight out of, what, 40-something kings. They were not a righteous people. Right. You know, and, and yet he, God kept loving them and kept keeping his end of the bargain clear up to the very end. So that was always clear good to Clear up to the know. end. He, but he does say, I will divorce you. And he does. people say God hates divorce. He divorced them. He, it says that in the Old Testament. I will divorce you because you have been an unfaithful spouse, but I'll keep true Israel with me. Yeah, that's you. Awesome. All right, let's pray and get out of Dodge. God, we pray for your spirit to teach us uh, the errors I make uh, as just a, another person trying to understand, be forgotten, evaporated, but we'll walk out renewed in the spirit and, and, and contemplate those things that your spirit, as Karen says, manifest as true, ring as true. And we, we want that in our lives. And so we just pray that we'll have that. We want to walk out of here now and be Christians. We, uh, we don't want to be said Christians. We don't, we don't seek to just be people who go to church. We want to have the spirit in our lives as we interact with everybody on this earth, everybody. And we seek to help them see the liberty that can be found in your son. That you have reconciled the world to yourself through him. They're blind to it. And so we have a gift and we just pray that you'll help us open that gift with taste and decorum and timing. And, and according to your will, we won't cast pearls before a proverbial swine and and, and do all sort of impetuous things by our flesh. But as we're led, you will move us this week to open our mouths according to your spirit 
and help those other people to see the light because we know what it does for us. We know what it did for us. And it liberated us from the confines of bondage and, and religion and all that other stuff. We pray for those who are suffering, so many people in so many different ways, people who are with us, people who aren't. Bless those viewers at home and people in the live uh, studio church. Help, uh, help uh, Jax, his mom and dad, Brian and Militia, who are divorcing. Help Jax as they've moved to Montana and bless that young kid that he will always cling to you and remember his times uh, of talking about you. Uh, we pray that you'll bless Nancy and Dave, Nancy with her stage uh, four cancer, and that you'll heal her and bless her and uh, give her long life if that's your will. If not, bless Dave that he'll be able to understand that and move with it. And everybody else who's struggling with jobs or whatever it might be, Lord, you do provide. When we look back over our lives, you are there. It's just hard for us to see it when we're in the fire. So send your spirit to be with us. Help us to walk in faith, walk in love, and exit here now. In Jesus' name, amen.